This Torah learning is dedicated Li'iloi Nishmat Mushalea Bat Paltiel, Zichrona Livracha. Most of us, when we start learning the Torah, often as children, first learn the stories of the Bible. This is the literal aspect of the Torah known as the Pshat. The Pshat is simply the straightforward linguistic meaning of the written Torah, the Torah Shebichtav. But the Pshat on its own is often very misleading. As we see in our own lives, when we judge people on an outer action of theirs without knowing what they meant by it, we very often get it wrong. The Torah is not just the literal stories, the literal words. There are in fact four main levels of consciousness through which the Torah is revealed to us. These four levels are called parodes, which stands for Pshat, Remez, Drash and Sod. Rabbi Ashlag, in his introduction to the study of the Ten Svirot, describes these four levels of consciousness as four different garments with which the one light of the Torah is clothed. The great Geon Eliyahu Vilna taught in his Siddur that for the attainment of the Torah, we need to actually first attain the first three levels of the innermost aspects of the Torah, which are the Remez, the Drash and the Sod, which are given by the Midrash, the Talmud and the Kabbalah, before we can have attainment in the literal aspect, which is the Pshat. What do we mean by the word attainment? In Hebrew, Hasaga. It's clear that the sages are not talking about intellectual knowledge alone. The Hasaga of Torah goes much deeper than that. It is a word which encompasses emotional knowledge, direct perception of spiritual reality, being able to feel and relate to the Torah as a living experience within oneself and being able to act from that. Indeed, Rabbi Ashlag, in his introduction to the Panim Mi'irot teaches that one who just learns the literal Torah, the Pshat, on its own, without the benefit of the three inner levels, needs great help from God if he's not going to completely lose his connection with the Almighty. Of these three levels, the most direct one is, in our day, the Kabbalah, the Sod. What precisely does learning the Kabbalah give us that adds so much to our understanding of the Torah? To answer this question, we need to know that another name for the Kabbalah is the Razei Torah, the secrets of the Torah. What does this rather mysterious name refer to? What is secret? In fact, the answer is quite close to home. With regard to any person, his revealed actions are obvious to us all, but what are hidden from the world, and often even from himself, are his intentions. The Gemara gives an example of this. Two Kohanim are eating their portion of the sacrifice in the evening. One is eating because he's hungry, and he's just thinking about the taste for his food and relieving his hunger. Such a Kohen is not connecting with the framework of holiness. But the other Kohen, as he's eating, is praying that through his eating, the sparks from the sacrifice should go up to God, and the owner of the sacrifice and the people of Israel as a whole should receive forgiveness and atonement. What is revealed on the outside is the scene of two Kohanim sitting down eating. 
but what is on their inside reality could not in fact be more different. From this example, we can see how a person's intentions change the meaning and the thrust of his actions from one extreme to the other. Not knowing intentions cause a superficial understanding of events at best and at worst a misjudgment. But I think it goes further than this. The Talmud teaches us, Masay avot siman lebanim, the deeds of our fathers is a guideline for the children. How can the deeds of our holy fathers be a guideline for their children, that's us, if we don't know their intentions with respect to their actions? And nowhere is this issue more burning than in the story we read in this week's parasha. In the synagogue, we read the story of Rivka, Yaakov and the blessings that Yitzhak gave to his son. You all know the literal Peshat, the literal Bible story of how Jacob seemed to extort the birthright from Esau and then how during his mother Rebecca's bidding, he subsequently put on Esau's clothes and deceived his blind father in order to receive the blessing. If we were to read only the literal story, it appears really shocking. Indeed, we would find such behaviour distressing if the protagonists involved were ordinary people. But how much more so when we're talking about our holy mothers and fathers, Rivka and Yaakov? How can we learn from this? I personally have to confess here that I also fell into this trap and for many, many years of my life had great difficulty relating to Rivka and to Yaakov. It was only last year when for the first time I had the opportunity to study this portion in the Zohar with the help of the Perusha Sulam of Rabbi Ashlag that I realised that I had made an inappropriate judgement. I had judged because I had not known the intentions of Rivka and of Yaakov in their actions. I had not been aware of Esau's true nature. I had not known the purpose of the blessings and their importance. And neither had I known why it was so important that Yitzhak should have been blind and thus unaware of Esau's wickedness. The Zohar opens the story by telling us the inner meaning of the prophecy that was made to Rivka when she was pregnant with the twins. She'd noticed a strange phenomenon. Whenever she went to do a mitzvah, then one of the twins, Yaakov, struggled to get out. When she passed by any area where idolatry was taking place, then Esau, the other twin, struggled to get out. She went to inquire of the Lord what this meant, and he answered her saying, there are two nations in your belly and two peoples will come from within you. Nation will struggle against nation and the older will serve the younger. Rabbi Ashlag in the Perusha Sulam on the Zohar teaches the inner meaning of this prophecy. The twins, Esau the firstborn, Jacob the second, who were born to Rivka, had extremely different vessels with which to receive the light of God. Yaakov had the vessels of giving, the desire for loving kindness. He had the vessels for the light of God that are associated and are fit for the tikkun of the creation, the rectification of the creation. Esau, who was born first, had the vessels of receiving. These vessels are bigger than those of giving, but are much more problematic. On the one hand, they are the vessels with which the created being may receive the light of God that he wants to give us, according to the purpose of creation, which is to give pleasure to the created beings. 
On the other hand, unless they are transformed only to be used for the sake of giving, they give rise to the framework of evil. Yaakov's essence is that of the framework of holiness. He is unworldly, a man of study. Whereas Esau's vessels, although he had the potential for holiness, was in practice drawn to the evil. He did not correct his vessels of receiving. He only became interested in things of this world. These very different tendencies became more evidenced as the lads grew. As the story unfolds, we learn that Esau despised his birthright. We need to ask ourselves, what did the birthright consist of? Did it consist of more tents, sheep, goats? No, that's not what the birthright involved. The birthright consisted of the tradition of Abraham, of his faith in God, his service to God. That was his inheritance, that which was given to Yitzhak and which was needed to be continued forwards. That was the birthright. It was an illumination of the light of Chochmah and Esau wanted no part in it. He wanted no part of it because unless such a great light is clothed with the light of giving unconditionally, unless the vessels for receiving it are rectified for the sake of giving, then such a great light causes suffering. That's why Esau came in from the field tired and weary. In fact, the Zohar says that far from Yaakov extorting the birthright from Esau, Esau had begged him on many an occasion to take the birthright from him because he couldn't stand it. He didn't want any part in it. But Yaakov would not just take it from him. He didn't trust Esau and something needed to be done. The Zohar informs us that when Esau came in from the field faint and tired, it was because he'd been murdering Nimrod to get Nimrod's garments. These were the garments that God had given to Adam in the Garden of Eden, and Nimrod used them to subdue the animals. When Esau came in from the field, Yaakov now knew he was not fit for the birthright, and that he himself, Yaakov, had to take over the tradition, rectifying not only his own vessels, but also Esau's vessels as well, and bring Esau's vessels also into the light. And this is why he insisted that Esau sell him the birthright. The story continues that Yitzhak's eyes grew blind. The Zohar teaches us that this was so that he would not know of Esau's evil ways. But the question remains, why didn't God tell him? Why did God not inform him how evil Esau had become? Yitzhak was blessed by God and the Shekhinah was always with him. But the Shekhinah did not tell him of the truth of Esau. Why was this? The Zohar teaches that the answer to this question is that if Yitzhak had known the reality of Esau, he would never have blessed him. He would have blessed Yaakov, but only as Yaakov alone. As we learnt at the beginning of this talk, 
Yaakov only had half the vessels for interacting with the light of God. He had the vessels for the light of loving kindness, the vessels that are appropriate for the tikkun of creation. But from his own essence, he did not have appropriate vessels for receiving the direct light of God, the light that fulfills the purpose of creation. These were the vessels that had been given to Asaph. God's purpose was that Yaakov should unite within himself both the tikkun of creation and the fulfilment of the purpose of creation. And for this to happen, Yaakov had to acquire and correct the vessels that pertain to Esau as well as his own. Yaakov, in putting on the garments of Esau, is symbolically taking on Esau's tikkun as well, uniting within himself all aspects of the vessels and subduing them all into the aspect of giving unconditionally. He receives the blessing of the end of the redemption, only for the sake of fulfilling the Creator's purpose, and not for anything for himself. By so doing, Jacob our Father creates a pathway for all humanity to come to its fulfilment in holiness. It is clear from the story that although Yitzhak did not know which son he was blessing, he knew he was blessing the right one. Because as Yaakov came into the room, the Shekhinah came in with him. When Yitzhak smelt Yaakov's clothes, he smelt the fragrance of the Garden of Eden. And this is what the scripture says. And his father Isaac said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. And he came closer and he kissed him, and he smelled the fragrance of his garments, and he blessed him, and he said, Behold, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field which the Lord has blessed. And may the Lord give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and wine. Nations shall serve you and kingdoms shall bow down to you. You shall be a master over your brothers and your mother's sons shall bow down to you. Those who curse you shall be cursed and those who bless you shall be blessed. If we look at this blessing in the way of our inner consciousness, the nations referred to here are the wills to receive for ourselves alone, the wills which Esau himself only wanted to deal with. Only when they are subdued under the will to receive for the sake of giving in the way of Yaakov will this blessing come to its fruition. Learning the story of Rivka, Yaakov and Esau in the Zohar with the commentary of Rabbi Ashlag, the Perusha Sulam, completely changed the way I see our holy fathers and mothers. It gave me a chance to understand more deeply their self-sacrifice and their total devotion both to the service of God and to their children. Not just to their immediate children, but to all their children to the thousandth generation of whom we are a part and a continuation.
This audio recording is brought to you from the Horus School, established by Yadida Cohen for the study of the Kabbalah as taught by Rabbi Yehudalev Ashlag. Studies with Yadida Cohen are available through the Nahoa School online. Details at www.nahoaschool.com or www.nahoapress.com.